Yes. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagandBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into the commonalities of successful people and the ups and downs of risk-taking. Connect with Carrie through her candid, funny, informative, and always encouraging weekly blog. And now it's time for Carrie McCoy to get all up in your business. Thank you, Sun Gray. After four decades of running a small business called Arkansas Flag and Banner, now simply flagandbanner.com, my team and I decided to create a platform for not just me, but other business owners and successful people to pay forward our experiential knowledge in a conversational way. Originally, we thought we'd be teaching others, but it didn't take long before we realized that we were the persons learning. Listening to our guests has been both educational and inspiring. And listening to today's Best Of program should be very interesting. We're going to revisit a number of Carrie's guests on the show over the past couple of years and find out what brought them to Little Rock. These are not native Arkansans. These are people who fell in love with Central Arkansas once they got here. We'll start off with the man you know as a TV gardener. He's also a lifestyle expert, a preservationist. He runs Plantopia and Botanical Gardens. Chris Olson. Uh, When did the seat of entrepreneurship first begin for you? You you know, I have always been that way. I started in Connecticut when I was a little kid. My dad uh, had a very stressful job. He was a stockbroker and actuary and all that. So his way to relieve his stress was a garden. So he created our whole backyard was a garden, orchard and everything. So I big backyard. To, it, we had a big backyard. In I mean, Connecticut, you had a big backyard? Yeah, we had a big backyard. Okay. I mean, we used to ride the station wagon picking up bags of grass and leaves to use as mulch in the garden. So I loved it. So he gave me a little patch of land. Uh, my grandpa had an old wagon. We painted it green. Like you're wearing green today, my favorite color. <laughs> <laughs> and I grew a vegetable garden, and that's how I started. I used to sell vegetables to my neighbors, and then I also had a paper route. And it all started because my dad was under, always never gave, they never gave allowance. You had to earn your money. I mean, I didn't live a bad life. I lived a good life, but nonetheless. You are living in yeah, Connecticut. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so um, I earned my own money and I grew up that nobody owes you anything and you owe no one anything. You work for it. You got, uh, you, you became, that, that instilled an ambition in you to Absolutely. earn stuff. I always worked from the beginning and always enjoy working. You know, you can do that same scenario with another child, and it won't work. That's exactly It'll make them mad. And then you can have another kid who's given everything, and they still end up ambitious. Because I, I always look under, don't, uh, you know, if you look at, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, um, who's the guy that's that's on the Today That's Okay, forget it. I'm going to go off on a wild tangent. <laughs> Skip all of that. When you go to edit this, Tom, just cut all of that out for the Friday show. So you grew up on the East Coast. Your father was an actuary and a bond daddy, it sounds like. Um, You had a greenhouse in your backyard. You have an innate passion for gardening that was like a lifelong goal. Did you go to school for horticulture? Um, Well, I did go to Oxford, England, but I went to architecture, landscape design. So I did not go to a horticultural school, though. So you went to Oxford, England, to an architectural landscape, landscape design. Art- Is that like a two-year program? Yes, two-year program. Is that what you would recommend to other people? 
Um, I mean, there's so many great programs here in the United States now, and, and I think we have one locally. So um, it's a great experience because, you know, there you study at actual gardens. You walk through and you learn their philosophies behind it. It's much more than just plant design and plant knowledge. It's really about the principles of design. Then you come back to the U.S. where you learn plant knowledge. I just got it from working in nurseries. And, um, of course, my dad has a passion for plants, too, so I picked it up from him. And the coolest thing is, is on weekends when I was a kid, me and my dad would visit nurseries. And he put in a little shells in my window to grow house plants. And anyway, and I always made money doing it. So. You remind me so much of P.L. Smith. Are y'all best friends? No. Doesn't everybody ask you that? Everyone y'all have compares so much us, in common. You know, no, y'all have so much in common. Yeah. Well, it's funny because he went to school in Europe. That's too, what to I was going to say. I know. We're very parallel lives. And then when I started Horticare, me and my dad started Horticare, we bought the old Burnham Woods, which was P. Allen's. It's freaky how it all works out. But we do not socialize at all, believe it or not. You should. Y'all could probably become best friends that ne- that could probably talk forever and ever and ever. Um, it's like Fletcher Fletcher uh, Fletcher Ford and Steve Landers. Yeah. Both love racehorses, and their wives told them to get together and talk to each other. And they were like, why would I do that for? He's my competitor. And then they got together, and they're best friends. They talk on the phone every day. You were, you Your lives are so parallel. See, I would be that way because I do not have an ego where that would intimidate me at all, or I'd think that we're competitors. I think we both have the same passion. You would probably uh, grow, you'd probably get together and feed off of each other and grow your ideas. You'd have somebody like-minded person. So how did you end up in Little Rock, Arkansas? Um, well, coming from Connecticut, I moved just a few times. So we moved to Atlanta, Georgia for a year and a half. And then from there, we moved to Little Rock. And we lived in Little Rock for about three and a half years. And then we moved to San Diego. Good night, nurse. <laughs> we kept going west. Why did your daddy, was it all for careers? Uh, he, every time he moved, he got a better, better job. Another guest on the program in the past couple of years that uh, began her life on another part of the globe, Pakistan, is the director of the Interfaith Center at St. Margaret's Church in Little Rock, Sophia Saeed. Sophia Saeed was born a liberal Muslim in Pakistan. She met her husband, Kaim Saeed, the night before their arranged marriage. Three months later, she joined her new husband in Utah, where he was studying to receive his doctorate. In Pakistan, Sophia and her father, both Muslims, were excited that Sophia had been accepted to a prestigious Catholic college there. Now in Utah, she found herself living amongst and attending college with Mormons. The cultural commonalities were striking, and her view of the world grew larger. When she first moved to America in 1996, it was an easy transition, a safe place for Muslims. But since 9-11, things have changed, and so has she. Having once been taught that women should be quiet and invisible, Sophia has decided to step into the limelight, not for herself, but for her children and for her community. After moving to Little Rock so that she could follow her husband, who got a job teaching at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, Sophia attended and graduated from yet another school, the Clinton School of Public Service. In 2012, she became an American citizen. Today, as the executive director at the Interfaith Center located at St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, this Muslim woman is spreading the word and reminding us to love thy neighbor, a common theme across all religions. Your husband's taking a job in Little Rock, Arkansas. 
He's working at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences. Kaim Saeed, and you moved here in 2007. You graduated in 2007, gave the valedictorian speech, come home. He says, all right, honey, that's over. We're moving to Little Rock, Arkansas. You said, let me get the map out. Where is that? Exactly. (laughs) I did know that this is the Clinton state. Yeah. And so you move here. Yeah. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. So I actually wanted to pursue my PhD after my bachelor's. And um, it was initially it was a bummer for me that, oh, we're moving to Little Rock and there is not a place where I can do my PhD. But Did you hear she said bummer? Okay, I just want to know that. Okay, go ahead. So, She's very American. All right, but then when I did my research on Little Rock, I found Clinton School of Public Service, which is essentially um, going to teach me the same things, or at least the work I'll do after that would be same. So I was actually pretty excited that we will see American South. Um, I had traveled a lot in America. I traveled from coast to coast and border to border. I've seen uh, not all, but more than 35 states, So I, but not the South part. So I was really excited to be in American South. And then Clinton School of uh, Public Service gave me an opportunity to do something uh, uh, different than PhD, but with similar outcomes. So I was very excited. I came here. I pursued my master's. Both my children were in middle and high school. And um, I worked with some local organizations as an economist, but started more and more focus on interfaith work because my children were growing and I thought there is a need to teach people interfaith cooperation, the skills of interfaith cooperation. I'm sure it helped them cope at school. Well, I hope so. That's how I started my work, but I hope so. Uh, one day my son um, came home and uh, at dinner table we would share stories of uh, what happened at the school. So... My daughter, who's younger than my son and uh, who's spunkier than my son, uh, she told me that, uh, Mom, um, Azkia's friend called him a terrorist again today. And I asked my son, what did you do about it, honey? And he was like, no, Mom, nothing. You know, people don't know and it happens every other day. No big deal about it. And we were sitting at our dinner table and it really struck me that, you know, I'm doing so much interfaith work and look at my child. He does not know how to respond to somebody who's calling him an extremist. And the kid is born and raised in America. He does not even know what an extremist is. So I asked him that, you know, you should have responded better. You know that this is not what Muslims are. And my daughter said, Mom, don't worry. I took care of it. And I said, really, how did you take care of it? And she said, you know, the child who called Azkia a terrorist, he was a Hindu. I said, okay. So I said, if you think our God is mean and tell us to go and kill people, your God is so cheap, you can buy it off a retail store's shelf. So I caught right back at him. If my God is mean, his God is cheap. And I was looking at my two beloved children that one of them does not know how to respond to a bully who's calling him an extremist and the other one is actually turning into a bully. (laughs) So both of them lack the communication skills that they needed to talk about faith. So that's how actually some of my work started. I thought it's really important that we teach our young children and teenagers how to talk about faith. And how can we do that if they never talk about faith to each other? So I started this program, which is called Multi-Faith Youth Group of Arkansas. 
back in 2011. And it's a group of teenagers, high schoolers, who are from Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist faiths, and no faith. And they come together twice a month. They have interfaith dialogue with each other. They talk about world issues. They talk about extremism and terrorism. They talk about gun violence. They talk about tolerance and love and patience. And they do service projects together. So they start the group in ninth grade. They graduate in 12th grade. It's been going on for years now. We have graduated uh, several high schoolers who have gone to different amazing universities. But the key thing is we are creating the leaders of the future who know how to communicate with diversity, deal with diversity, how to respect each other's differences and live in a positive, healthy, inclusive community. Thank you. That's wonderful. Our next Little Rock transplant is a football player. And even though you hear him every day on local radio and you see him weekly on local television, he's not from the Little Rock area. David Basil is a Floridian, but he fell in love with Arkansas. Do you come from an athletic family? Uh, I'm an only child. Came from Panama City, Florida. My dad was a pretty good athlete, small, undersized, didn't play football. So I was the only one to do that and uh, left Panama City to come play football at Arkansas for Lou Holtz back in the early 80s. So you were born in Florida? Yeah, Panama City. We, Redneck Riviera. I oh. did I did not realize yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, so gotta, it was for, for me to come up here, it was pretty unique because, you know, where I'm from down there, nobody knew much about Arkansas. But I, I wanted to go to a place to where if I, when I, once I left, I could make an impact. This was a 16-year-old kid making that decision. So I knew if I went to Arkansas, if I could achieve success with the Razorbacks, it would open up doors because I couldn't believe how much people love the Razorbacks here. Where I'm from, every every block in your neighborhood had Alabama, Florida State, Florida, you know, Auburn. And so, but the loyalties here, you know, there are other schools here, but Arkansas was such a dominant thing to where I thought, you know, if I came up here, succeeded, once I got through with school, it would open up a lot of doors. And you, it has. You said you were 16? So I was a 16-year-old senior making that decision. Why were you a 16-year-old senior? I started school early. So I was playing football for the Razorbacks when I was 17. How about that? And Crazy. you were a linebacker. I was a linebacker, yes. That's a big guy's position. Undersized, but I was quick. I was strong. I had a good football IQ. Played with, had some really good coaches. So, uh, But I, I'm still, it's like today, uh, I had a shoulder replacement yeah, a year ago. It failed. I, had to, I can't even raise my arm. So I think that being undersized and playing that game, overuse from foot, you know, I'm paying for it now, but I will still do the same thing. I love the game. Next up on this program where we're thinking and talking about folks who are not from Arkansas but have landed here and have fallen in love with the place. They've all been guests in the past year and a half or two years on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. And here comes a couple of guys who really do come as a pair. They're both from the Northeast, but they're Little Rock legends now. Leslie Singer and Phil Kaplan the two Jewish guys. Though the two men have a lot in common, they haven't always known each other. Leslie Singer, an ad man and once VP for Fairfield Communities near Hebrew Springs, Arkansas, and Phil Kaplan, a civil rights attorney in private practice, first meeting was as volunteers at an on-air fundraiser for KUAR radio station. They became fast friends, finding out they both were born in the Northeast, both moved to Little Rock in the 1970s, and both grew up in the Jewish culture. On air, their commonalities and dry humor, coupled with listeners' curiosity, made for great storytelling and Jewish shtick. Talk about how happenstance first meeting at KUAR's fundraiser. 
Who wants to set the scene for that? Well, there's a Yiddish word, bashert. It's faded. Bashert. Can you say bashert? Bashert. Bashert. Yes. Bashert. It's faded. Well, we were obviously faded. See, I had an office on what was then the Main Street Mall. And um, I'd go out and maybe get a little lunch. And Leslie was an inveterate walker. He was walking. He was always walking. He was always walking. And he was walking on the Main Street Mall. And I'd see him on the Main Street Mall. And he was there with Don Evans, a now retired architect, who is not very funny, actually. So I don't, I'm sorry I even <laughs> mentioned his name. <laughs> um, huh? at any he rate. makes me laugh. So I saw, um, I saw Leslie and this other fellow. And... Um, we would uh, chit-chat um, occasionally. And then one day, I had been doing the, um, the fundraiser with somebody else whose name I now can't recall. And uh, they inserted Leslie. They didn't think I could handle it by myself. So they inserted Leslie into this uh, cramped little room. And uh, it was magic. It was Bashert. But let me, let me tell you the... A little more detail about it. So we're in the room. It's the fundraiser, you know, t- twice a year. And for KUAR. For KUAR Public Radio. And um, other, they do that all week. And so every day of the week, they have several other hosts doing the same thing. Those guys basically, or women, would they'd come in and they'd basically beg for money. And it was kind of boring, you know. And it wasn't boring, kind of. It was, it was exceedingly. <laughs> it was kind of exceedingly boring. Yeah. And we said, let's not do that. Let's, why don't we just do this? This was all in the spur of the moment. Why don't we just do a show? You know, like you're a little kid. Hey, let's do a show. So we said, okay, let's do a show about being Jewish. And we'll just call it the two Jewish guys. And we will just ad lib our way through it. And we'll talk about what it's like being Jewish and our Jewish backgrounds and a Jewish culture and Jewish jokes, blah, blah, blah. And we did that. And it was was pretty big. I mean, people really liked it. A lot of people called in. And, you know, the deal was, if you had done this in New York, nobody would have cared. But it's not that common, you know, to have two guys talking about being Jewish or Judaism. Who were aberrations. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was lighthearted, and we were making fun of ourselves, and we were making fun of everything. And so it clicked. Phil, you grew up in Massachusetts, graduated from Harvard Law, and practiced as a field attorney for the National Labor Relations Board. Was it in St. Louis or Massachusetts? And kind of tell us about that journey. Well, I went to Harvard College and went to the University of Michigan Law School. And then I worked for the National Labor Relations Board in St. Louis. St. Louis. How'd you go there? How'd you go from Massachusetts to St. Louis? You know, it was something called a job. Just following the job. Following the job, Yes thought I ought to use that law degree in something that my parents helped pay for. Um, and when you apply for a government position, mm-hmm. um, you go where they tell you to go. And there was an opening in St. Louis. Turned out to be um, a really uh, wonderful experience. We loved St. Louis. And Who's we? Were you married at the time? My wife. You were married. And Yes. I was married halfway through law school halfway through my second year of law school, and I sent her to work. <laughs> well, needed something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. somebody's got it. So she was a, an elementary school teacher for a while. She's now, I mean, she's now a retired social worker. But um, at that point, uh, we lived in Ann Arbor, 
it was uh, Ann Arbor was a wonderful town. Couldn't make a living there, but it was a wonderful town. And St. Louis was wonderful uh, and wonderful experience. Also worked learning a lot about employment and labor law. So and I got know? an offer uh, to come to work for a firm here that was then known as McMath, Leatherman, Woods, and Youngdahl, now the McMath firm, Governor McMath, and then Judge uh, Henry Woods, and a man named Leland Leatherman, and Jim Youngdahl, who uh, handled the employment work at that firm. And I left after about uh, 13, 14, 15 months, something like that, and um, became associated with John Walker in what later became Walker, Kaplan, and Mays. How did you, 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 you were affected by the Central High. I was in college uh, during the Central High business, and there was a um, man at Kirkland House where I was uh, who was from Little Rock, and he took a considerable amount of ribbing um, as a result of the closure of and sending troops in all of the whole terrible uh, business. Um, but soon after I joined John, um, we actually before I joined John, uh, there was a, um, a trial about busing in Little Rock um, before uh, Judge the late Gordon Young. And I uh, represented a bunch of white parents who uh, were proposing uh, that busing be the alternative to desegregate the schools. At that point, the only uh, desegregation was freedom of choice, and that resulted in almost no um, desegregation at all. So, Leslie, before you came to live in Arkansas, you were a successful drummer. Telling us about Tell us about your career. It was pretty successful. What was the name of your band? Well, I was in several bands as I was growing up, uh, starting in like maybe junior high school and through high school. But uh, the two bands that sort of took me the to places that were the most unusual was um, a, a group called The Unloved, which was a soul band. This is prior to the bigger band. Unloved. The Unloved, L-U-V apostrophe D, as, as, <laughs> as was the fashion back there in the, you know. And this was, a, this was a soul band. And it was a very good band. We had, we really thought we were going to make it. We had a big manager who had, and a big musical attorney in New York named Warren Troub. And we had a secret under the table partner, which is, you know, remember payola and all that kind of thing. We had, this wasn't payola, but there was a guy in New York named Scott Muni, who was a major uh, radio DJ and FM had just started. That's how old this is. And Scott Muni was a secret partner with our our manager, Paul Minio. And we had these two women who wrote songs for us, both of whom had had hit records, like with Wilson Pickett and other people. And this was going to be it. Yeah. And we just knew it. And it wasn't, which just <laughs> never happened. You know, uh, we played a lot of great clubs. We actually opened once at a... At, at a, like a Miss New York State contest, we opened for James Brown, if you can believe that. And wow, this so was impressed. a good this was a good band. We played at the 
peppermint lounge and you know all that good kind of cool stuff but we never made it big but it was almost beside the point because it's the late 60s you're in new york you're in the rock and roll business you know it wasn't going to get much better than that for kids our age left that band i was sort of recruited to another band called the unspoken word which went to school up at brown university and rhode island school of design up near where you were they were like a more of a they had a woman lead singer Dee. her name was Dee, and they were more like psych rock you know psych like psych not psychedelic but quietly you know ethereal and and they were really good so we got a great recording contract with them with atco which is an atlantic records and uh we did this first album, which was a concept album called Tuesday, April 19th. And, you know, people don't know what concept album Well, concept means. album means that there was like a story behind it. It wasn't just, you know, 14 songs or something. It was, it was some kind of a, there was more to it. There was a story. Frankly, there really wasn't. We were trying to make more out of it than it really was. What was the name of the album? It was called Tuesday, April 19th, which was meant to be just a day in the life of this person. I never because really understood. Because it's a story. Because it's a story. Now, it doesn't really read like a story of anybody's day. It it frankly doesn't. But this was the 60s, man. You could just say anything and do and anything. And Bob Dylan was writing all these ballads. Yeah, and these long things. And then we had, so then that was well received. Um, so we did a, a fan, it was a fancy album. It had a big orchestra and everything. Because we said, this might be the only album we do. Let's make it significant. Strings. But it really wasn't us strings you had yeah big orchestra strings and everything yeah brass the whole every instrument phil literally every (laughs) instrument timpani everything timpani timpani even and so it didn't really so but really we were really not that kind of a band we were a really kind of a hard driving blues band and so our next album just simply called the unspoken word was that it did better it did better and a matter of fact, it got reviewed in Rolling Stone magazine and got a great review in Rolling Stone magazine. I mean, they really liked it. And uh, so we toured around with that, but still never really made it into the. So tell the listeners what that day also happened on that day. So you just picked this day randomly. Tuesday, oh, you're talking about Tuesday, April 19th. He told me this right before we went on the air. Oh, I was well, like, this the is first freaking album, me out. The, it, I've tried to create this. I haven't really tried. I thought about trying to create this buzz about this album, which is available, by the way, like on eBay and Spot. Uh, you can hear it in different places. Tuesday, April. Tuesday, April nineteenth. By which was, the unspoken word. By the word. unspoken word, which was just a random date that I actually came up with, just off the top of my head. But what happened was Tuesday, April nineteenth. Several years later, was the Waco massacre. Remember when Waco David when that whole Korish, com- Korish, Korish and, the, and the, mm-hmm. that communal group got, you know, and then a couple of years later was the Oklahoma City bombing. Which I cannot was believe those two, were on the same two days. Two, well, I think they were related to each other. I think the Oklahoma City bo- bombing was in as a result of the Waco thing. In other words, somebody was saying, oh. I'm going to celebrate, you know. Celebrating. Yeah, celebrate it. So I've tried to create this. I've, I've, I've fantasized about creating an artificial buzz about how if you listen to the unspoken word Tuesday, April 19th album, there's all these hints that some big stuff was coming down. Would that be fake buzz? That's fake buzz, we call that. (laughs) So, but it wasn't. I mean, it's because you can project anything into anything. So, all in all, a very, very fun musical career, which basically determined the whole pathway of my life. 
because the band got me to Arkansas. The band. How did me. it do that? Well, we were we were getting ready to write the second album, and a friend of mine in New York had met a communal group that was living in Arkansas. Very popular at the time. Yes, and he said, "Why don't you guys come down to Arkansas and live with us mm-hmm. for a month or so and write your album down there?" And that just sounded like the coolest thing ever. So we did, and we came down. And we wrote the album, and then we went back to New York. But um, So you went back to New York? I went back to New York, but then came back down to Arkansas. Because you fell in I love liked, or something? Because I liked it here. Oh, you just liked it here. I you said liked... when you went back to New York, you sold, you sold shoes. Oh, yes, oh, that's great. <laughs> so here I am, Mr. Big Shot Musician, uh, at the top of my musical career. I go back to New York. Uh, I had already not only been a musician, but I had gone into advertising, sort of got hired at an ad agency. When I left this communal group after about three years, I got a job with an ad agency. And uh, the woman I was married to at the time, she was from New York also, and we thought we missed it. Mm-hmm. So we moved back to New York. Well, I couldn't get a job in New York in advertising. No way, because here I am from Little Rock, you know, and and it was the recession. And the only job I could get was selling women's shoes in Bergdorf Goodman, which is a high-end, high-end high end mm-hmm. Fifth high Avenue, end. you know. But I was terrible shoe salesman. I was terrible. and uh, But I did sell shoes to Greta Garbo. That's the highlight. No. Of my, yeah, absolutely. Size 9 Papagallo flat. And, and I... <laughs> I never, never knew forget that, it. Leslie. You didn't tell me. Well, I don't, you don't know everything, Phil. You don't know everything. <laughs> well, I got secrets. now everybody else knows. Everybody knows. So I, I stayed there nine months, and I wrote to my boss here in Little Rock, and I said, could I have my job back? He said, absolutely. Come on back. I'll give you a raise. We'll give you this. We'll give you that. And, and so I came back, and I've been here now like 45 years. We'll be back in just a minute with more stories of Arkansans who didn't start here but came to Arkansas and have fallen in love with the place. Um, Up in your business, the best of 2021 with Carrie McCoy. You're listening to Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of flagandbanner.com. Over 40 years ago, with only $400, Carrie founded Arkansas Flag and Banner. During the last four decades, the business has grown and changed, along with Carrie's experience and leadership knowledge. In 1995, she embraced the internet and rebranded her company as simply flagandbanner.com. In 2004, she became an early blogger. Since then, she has founded the nonprofit Friends of Dreamland Ballroom, began publishing her magazine, Brave, and in 2016, branched out into this very radio show, YouTube channel, and podcast. And today, Carrie McCoy Enterprises acquired OurCornerMarket.com, an online company specializing in American-made plaques, signage, and memorials for over 20 years. If you'd like to sponsor this show or get involved with any of Carrie McCoy's enterprises, send an email to me, gray, that's G-R-A-Y at flagandbanner.com. Telling American-made stories, selling American-made flags, theflagandbanner.com. Welcome back to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. We're on this Best Of 2021 show. What we're doing is looking back at guests who didn't start their lives or careers in Arkansas, but they moved here for one reason or another and have fallen in love with Central Arkansas and Little Rock, Arkansas. The next guest on the program, I'll let Carrie McCoy introduce. My guest today 
is the Little Rock, Arkansas restaurateur legend, Mr. Louis Petit. His Arkansas folklore began in 1975 when Jacques and Suzanne Triton. How do you say it, Louis? Triton, yes. Triton. I see. I'm Arkansan. <laughs> Triton. But it's Triton. Decided to bring their European cuisine to Little Rock, Arkansas. Their restaurant was aptly and now famously called Jacques and Suzanne's on the top 30th floor of the first commercial bank building in Little Rock, Arkansas. But the Tritons, say it again. Triton. I can't do it. I'm just going to say it like yeah. an Arkansan. The yeah. Tritons. Okay, but the Tritons didn't stay long. After just a few short months, they left. And their restaurant manager, Mr. Paul Bash, took the reins. His first order of business was to hire a European staff. This is when he hired Mr. Louis Petit as Jacques and Suzanne's first maitre d'. For 11 years, Mr. Bass, Mr. Moore, and Mr. Petit offered the fine dining, elegant surroundings, and a view of Little Rock that was unmatched. If you have ever wondered why, or had out-of-town guests asks why, are there so many good restaurants in Little Rock, this is why. From Jacques and Suzanne's, Mr. Bash and and Mr. Petit expanded their restaurant empire and spawned many local restaurateurs and local chefs on culinary perfection. Among these restaurants, which this is just a few, was Maison Louis, Café Prego, Graffiti's, and now Keat and Petit. It is my pleasure to welcome to the table restaurant royalty and our very own French chef, Mr. Louis Petit. Thank you very much. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Well, hello, friend. Let's start at the beginning. How did you and Paul Bash, two international guys, meet and end up in Little Rock, Arkansas? It's a very interesting story, really, because I met Paul Bash in Brussels, Belgium, in 1972. Paul was in Brussels to learn French and French cuisine for a company, a Swiss company, Hotel Lendy. We met there. Hotel Lindy? Hotel, uh, the owner of Hotel it was called Hotel Lindy. It was, it's a Swiss hotel. And we met in 1972. He was working in the kitchen. I was a maitre d'. And we became friends. No, he was from, he didn't know the city. So as I spoke English okay, a little bit. So I, I, could, I was able to teach him, direct him, say, don't go to this part of town. Stay here, do that. And we instantly, we became friends. And he was there just for one year. I mean, he, then he returned to America. And after one year, I also left Hotel Lindy and went and worked in Switzerland, where I applied for a position, a metro d in Little Rock, Arkansas, which I was talking Jacques and Suzanne. And when my, during my interview, Jacques said, do you know Paul Bash? I said, yes, of course, we, we are friends. He called him. He said, do you know Louis Petit? Yeah, absolutely, hire him. And that's how I ended up in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Paul Bash, being from... Uh, Finlay, Ohio, it was a foreign for him. It was for me. You know, when you come here, you have inches and, and, and uh, ounces. and It's a different... Uh, yeah, the, the metric system. You metric don't have the metric system. No. So Paul took care of everything, and Paul is an amazing organizer first to begin with. I mean, and he's a great, uh, a great person and a great chef, of course. I mean, it was, he was the... How did Paul Bash meet Jacques and Suzanne's? How did he even end up there? And why were you applying? How did you find out about Again, that? I mean, the, the, it's, it's life, you know, those defining moments in life. The, the gentleman that got him uh, the job in Brussels is an, an American gentleman named Neil Maury, 
who was married to the to the daughter of the Mr. Landy. So it's and, and, and they were yeah, network. They were playing golf. Together. It was a golf uh, partner of Jacques, uh, Jacques, Jacques Triton and Neil Maury were playing golf together. And when Jacques said, uh, we are opening a French restaurant in Little Rock, Arkansas, you know, anybody said, yes, I have uh, Paul Bash who lives in Little Rock. No, he, did, he lived in Finland, Ohio at the time. So oh. but they met, uh, no, and, and Jacques hired Paul to run the kitchen, design the kitchen even much. No, the, the, the theater floor was a virgin. We had the whole floor. Which is, remember, it was an amazing restaurant, so beautiful, with the view at a sunset on, on Mormon Lake. I mean, now we have the bar, the main dining room, the, the private room. And the, the, the kitchen was the best view. <laughs> we could see the, air, the airport from there. It was, oh. it was the tallest building at the time. I mean, but yes, it was such an adventure. I mean, I remember we met in, we met in Geneva together. And, and we were, my dream was to come to America. Like, but it's another story. I mentioned it to you earlier. That I was born during World War II. And I'm, my generation, we are very grateful to Americans for... Made, made is making us free. Yeah. <coughs> and so I, so the, the seed was planted when I was a teenager. And my dream was to come to America. And the door opened because of... Uh, because you applied. So uh, how'd you find out about... You'd already applied, though, before you knew that Paul Bass was absolutely, there. Absolutely. Uh, we didn't have the internet back then. How do you find that stuff out? It, they had a, a, a trade uh, newspaper called Hotel Review. Oh. No, it was everybody advertised... Because in Switzerland, they, they live of the tourism. I mean, it's the number one industry there. So, so you, you find you're the chef, you want a, a, a waiter, maitre d', any kind of dishwasher, you name it, it's in this uh, journal. I mean, I, I saw this ad, Little Rock, Arkansas, which was foreign to me. I, everyone says, why did you come to Little Rock and, and not, you know, to uh, New York, San Francisco, right. Los Angeles, like everyone else does? And you know, I didn't choose the door, choose me, so to speak, because the, the door that opens. But to me, I wanted to come to America, period. I mean, and Little Rock, I had no prejudice. I mean, I'm, and, and, and I'm so blessed because and I go to New York. In New York, I have a French accent, three million people like me. In Little Rock, we, I was unique at the time. You know, it was, oh, my God, we love your voice. Thank you very much. Talk to us. It was instant recognition. I mean, so this was an amazing part of the success also that we were. You are French royalty to us because we didn't no. have any Frenchmen here. We were like, Louis Petit's here. But it's, that's what's, You're like the, a celebrity. The, the, yeah, exactly. I mean, because we don't think, I don't think I'm, I'm a celebrity. I don't think I'm famous. I don't think I am. Me, I'm, I'm just a lucky waiter. That's, that's, the way, <laughs> that's the way I look at myself. Because, you know, coming to a Little Rock in a brand new, beautiful restaurant, so elegant, I mean, on top of the building, it was a, a Were you of, scared? How did you learn anything? How did you? So you saw that there was an opportunity in Little Rock. Your friend Paul Bass was here. You know, serendipity that y'all ended up together in Little Rock. But you didn't know anything about Little Rock, probably. How did you learn about it before you came, or did you just come? I, I did not learn anything. But I just came with an open mind, first of all. And we, we had heard the trouble of uh, the... High school in 1969, I think. Uh, 59. Mm-hmm. 59, sorry. Yeah. So we knew a little bit about it, but th- this was okay. I mean, it's life. I mean, me, I don't have preconceived idea. I didn't come here thinking. I was so happily surprised, to be honest with you. First, the way we were greeted by the. Just to tell you, the, 
an example. I don't know what Jack is doing on top of the building. Yeah. When we arrived, the kitchen was not functioning. And we were putting the rug on the floor, hanging the chandelier and everything. So we would go every lunch to get the group of all the European. We were about 15 people, I think, all together. We would go to the Minutemen downstairs. And it was a burger place to have lunch. And we would sit down at a big table and... The public would come to us and say, welcome to our city. With Oh, my God. Because just hearing us speaking French and laughing and, you know, and having everything was new to us. And they were so nice to, to us. I mean, the little girl behind the, the counter taking our order. I mean, and, and, and the public coming to us and say, welcome to Arkansas. Never heard that in Europe, you know, they are much oh, more yeah. formal. I mean, they're oh, not yeah. as open, open-minded. And Snobby. And we, a little bit much more snob. I mean, this, this is, that's why, to me, I mean, coming to Little Rock has been the highlight of my life. Our next guest on this program, about guests from up in your business's past 18 months or so that have come to Little Rock for their family or for their profession and have fallen in love with it, even though Arkansas may not have been home, is a woman who is making history at the Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in downtown Little Rock, the first female dean in the 140-year history of the cathedral it's amy moe let's start at the beginning you moved a lot as a child and as a young adult you have lived in south carolina mm-hmm. north carolina mm-hmm. new orleans mm-hmm. we just talked about austin mm-hmm. dallas kentucky and now arkansas we finally made it home why is this home oh it feels like home really mm-hmm. but it's not really where we don't have bo- any ties here where were you born beaufort south carolina and it sounds like you're torturing your children. <laughs> <laughs> were they well, all born in different states? That. They were all. Yes. I, our daughter, who's 16, is a native. She's the only one in the whole family who's a native New Orleanian in our little core of five. And we've always said that it'll be her obituary that says, you know, her name, birth dates. It'll say native New Orleanian lived here six months lived all over the country after that but they'll claim her so where are the other children born jacob was born in dallas and our youngest was born in uh, lexington kentucky when did you know you wanted to become a priest was there a singular event or had you been ruminating on it for a while because you have a ba in liberal arts Mm -hmm. i read where you were going to go to school to be a lawyer i think Mm -hmm. i read and then all of a sudden, now you've got a master's in divinity. Was there something that happened, or did you really always kind of think about it? I always wanted to be a priest. Um, my closest friends are tired of hearing this story. Um, but well, I've I, never heard of you, it. So I'll tell you, thank you for being interested. Um, I grew up, I'm an only child. I grew up spending my summers with my grandparents. And my paternal grandfather, Grandpa Joe, went to church every Sunday he was the treasurer of his church. This was back in the day when you could, um, the treasurer could actually take the money home and make the deposit and then take it to the bank the next day. So my time spent with him in the summer was going to church with him. He was teaching me ministry as a non-ordained person unintentionally, really. Um, so when I was about eight years old, we went to a Lutheran ordination. I grew up Lutheran, and the minister I don't know if you've ever been to an ordination, but there's all this really fancy stuff, right, with the clothes and the music. And I thought to myself, I don't know what this guy has going on, but I like it. 
And that was the, the seed, right? That's how I, that's how God got me. Um, I started talking from that age about that. I wanted to be eight years old when I wanted to be a minister. Well, it is theater and you are counting money in the afternoons. Those I mean, two pretty good things. It's, <laughs> right. There's a lot of like positives as a kid. You're like nothing really bad here. Um, Plus, everybody at church is nice. I mean, on Sundays. So I talked about it forever. I never had anybody tell me no, which is really unusual. You know, in the Episcopal Church, they only started ordaining women in 1976. I was born in 1974. So there should have been a lot of people to tell me no, especially in the South. Uh, South has been behind everybody else in ordaining women. Um, but no one ever did, and which to me is a miracle. So I got to college and told everybody I was getting a liberal arts degree to get me ready to go to seminary. If I could have skipped college, I would have. If I thought I could just go straight to the Master's of Divinity piece, but you, you got to get the BA to get the MDiv. But while I was in college, I really lost my faith. It was really the first time my faith had ever been tested in any significant way. And it wasn't like anything dramatic happened. It was just I stopped going to church. It, it it didn't have any, it just didn't really have any meaning. I think what happened was is I lost my sense of duty and obligation. And so my junior year, I broke up with a boyfriend. He broke my heart. And my closest friend, my oldest friend, who was my college roommate, she was applying to go abroad to do a year in Ireland, in Northern Ireland. And she said, just a why don't you just apply? You just come with me and just get a break. Just take a break. I'm like, I'm a junior. I'm supposed to graduate next year. Who cares? You know? Okay. So I said, my mom will never let me do it. I called my mom. My mom said, well, if you can pay for it, you can go. I don't, that sounds like a good idea. So the whole plan was that Martha and I were going to go together. We'd be together. Well, she got placed in Finland. And the next thing I knew I was on an airplane, never traveled other to my grandparents. I never went to camp. No. I'm on an airplane to, Belfast, Northern Ireland. By yourself? By myself. I got off the plane. Start praying. Well, I got off the plane. <laughs> I called my dad. I said, well, there you go. I did it. Can I come home now? Nope. They wouldn't let me. I didn't come home at Christmas. What month is this? Um, that would have been August of 2000, uh, 1995. Did you stay? Who'd you stay with? We lived in the dorms. So it was a it was a pure exchange program. This is when kids were first studying abroad. You know, now everybody goes abroad. But back there, it was like a really unusual thing. So all my scholarships applied. And um, I was working on my senior thesis. So and my senior thesis was on Northern Irish literature. So everything just sort it just sort of all fell into place. And I ended up in Belfast, staying in the dorm. The first people to greet us off the airplane was the basically like what we would think of now as the Baptist Student Union, except they're all Anglican over there. So it was the equivalent of like an Anglican Student Union. And they just sort of adopted me. Um, there were a whole group of us. that Our floor was sort of the international student floor. So there was a young woman from Finland. There were some some Southern Irish, our, our true Irish folks there. Not true Irish, but um, Americans, Swedish, um, the Swedish, they used to dress me up like a Swede and they'd teach you me. You look like a Swede. And they'd teach me Swedish sayings. There's a huge Swedish population in Northern Ireland. <laughs> and we would go to these soccer football games and they'd teach me how to talk in Swedish and people would come up. It was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> they'd paint these Swedish flags on my face. At any rate, I made these like these this Christian 
students just really they would come by and you accidentally met them because your program was not a religious based no, program i was going to a public so god university. came in there and said we're going to just sweep her up i vividly remember i had been invited to go to a bible study and i said look i didn't even bring my bible why won't you let this go and um he said oh his name was andrew he showed up the next week with a bible inscribed i still have it it's an NIV, which is the New International Version, but they called it the the Northern Ireland Version. And he said, now you have a Bible, now you just come. And it it really did. I remember standing in the rain and thinking, this is the dumbest race I've ever run in my life. I'm not going to win. So in terms of trying to run away from God. Ah. And so um, I started going to church with them. And by the time I left, I had fallen back in love with God and it was not a duty obligation. It truly was this. I have this relationship with my creator and he's called me into this ministry, but I don't really want to do that ministry because it's, it's not very sexy. Right. So I'll just go to law school. That's what I do. I'll go to law school. That's the inner conversation that was happening in my head. That'd be interesting. I'll make more money mm-hmm. um, for sure. Right. My advisor was like, well, I thought you were going to go to seminary. I was like, I changed my mind. I'm not going to do that. She's like, well, you, you you, could become a lawyer for nonprofits. That, And I'm thinking, well, you don't make a lot of money doing that. But, okay, I'll do that. That feels like a civil service sort of thing to do. Yeah. And, right. So when you apply to law school, at least back in the day, 20 years ago, you had to write like 300 words or less. Why do you want to be a lawyer? Uh, I had a sentence. It's, it was my advisor tells me that would an interesting that's your sentence because my advisor told me to right it's probably not going to get you into like washington and lee i mean i just a guess but um and i was sitting at our kitchen table we, we lived in this very small apartment and um i was sitting at this kitchen table and i just burst into tears because i i could not it was like the first i'm a liberal arts degree i can kind of my way through anything right i can kind of make up my answer through anything she whispered yeah, but y'all. In case um, you're wondering, you fill in the blank. <laughs> so, I couldn't. I couldn't come up. I couldn't fake my way into law school, and it was because I was called to be a minister of the to, gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I called my priest and said, "I think I need to go through an ordination process." And he said, "Well, finally, you've come back. You're Lutheran priest." This. So we became Episcopalian when I was in junior high. Who's we? My parents and I. Your father, that's a scientist. Food scientist, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we say he left the Lutheran church because they had called a minister who he, my dad had decided was racist. He probably was racist. And my dad wasn't going to go to church there. So m- my dad says he became a seventh-day golfer. <laughs> There's and, a lot of those. Right. And my mom started visiting churches. And this was in a little town called Laurenburg, North Carolina. So right outside of Fayetteville. They, um, they have a Presbyterian college there. And... um teeny tiny episcopal church there still a mission it's always been a mission and the minister there uh, the very reverend timothy kimbrough he's now the dean of the cathedral in nashville whoa um it was his first church and uh, timothy is um i mean in my mind he was six feet tall i don't know how actually how tall he is but when you know when you're in middle school and there's somebody with a big personality they mm-hmm. just are as they're they're as tall as God. Mm-hmm. And that was Timothy, big, thick, bushy black hair. It's all gray now and so engaging. And um, he has a smile that just lights up a room. And he just, you just know he loves you. He's, it's like you're the exactly what he needed that day. And so my mom said, we're going to go to church here. And that's how we became Episcopalian. And dad said, okay. 
Mm-hmm. You did. Finally, Ned Permy, Channel 7 weatherman and meteorologist for so many years. Didn't start here, but when he arrived, he loved it. You attended college in Alabama, and you have a degree in communications, and you're one of the few people that I actually know that went to school and got a degree in something that they actually ended up working in for all of their life. Well, the reason, uh, the, the biggest thing that helped me so much in the business that I went into and eventually into meteorology is knowing how television worked, is knowing behind the scenes. I started out as working in a studio, running camera and doing lighting and running audio and then directing, directing commercial production and directing newscasts and all during that. During high school, after college? It was after, during college and after college. I but did how did you know going into college that you wanted to work in communications? At first, I didn't. When I first went in, I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. What? <laughs> well, it's because my father was a lawyer, my grandfather was a lawyer, my uncles were lawyers. There's a lawyers in my family. And, and when you grow up, they kind of look at you like, well, you're probably going to want to be a lawyer. And mm-hmm. Once I started in school, I started taking some of the pre-law prerequisites, mm-hmm. and I quickly found out that I was not the least bit interested in it. And then I just kind of fell into a few courses in broadcasting, and uh, from that, I just fell in love with that whole thing and knew right away that that's what I wanted to go into. How did you end up in Alabama? I went to a small Jesuit school in Mobile, and at the time had about 900 students in the whole thing. But I loved it, and I was 50 minutes from the beach, yeah. which I loved that even more. Yeah. And I just stayed down there and started my career down there at, at WALA-TV. And what happened was some of the people from Channel 7 Television here, including, I believe, Bob Steele, which was the assistant news director at the time, he would travel with his family down to Pensacola or Fort Walton Beach and turn on the local news and watch me doing the weather out live. Apparently, he liked what he saw, and they called and asked me if I would be interested in coming to Little Rock, Arkansas. And I went, Okay, I think I'll look at it. Mm-hmm. And I came here, and very simply, I I just loved the place. And really, yeah, I you really love did. About it? it was just a bigger city than I thought it was right. was going to be, and it just had you know beautiful symphony orchestra, and it had a ba- and it had you know the Arkansas ballet, and it just not that I'm crazy about that stuff, but I liked the fact that this was kind of a sophisticated city and i didn't realize it like many people don't many people think it's kind of backwards i hate to say that but um so i loved i loved what it looked like i loved the television station and i could tell that they 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 really wanted me guests from the past year or so that have been on up in your business with carrie mccoy who may not have started in arkansas but once they got here they knew it was home fun program Happy New Year, everybody, and thank you for listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guest. All interviews are recorded and posted the following week. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal? To help you live the American dream.